says it's not muted. Can you hear me? Nope. All right. I'll uh, I'll get my tablet turned on, and uh, hopefully it'll uh, do its thing. Hey, glad to be with you tonight. We are going to be in the book of Galatians chapter 4. I'm not a loud person, so hopefully I can be loud enough until we get the, the microphone turned on. Um, but we are continuing our study in the book of Galatians. There we go. Sounds good. Thanks, Rich. Appreciate that. Uh, so we are, if you've been with us, we've been going through the book of Galatians on Sunday evenings and uh, have had an opportunity to hear multiple people teach us from the book of Galatians. We're going to be in Galatians chapter 4 this week. Uh, Grant led us through Galatians 4, 1 through 7. We're going to be in verses 8 through 20. So if you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bible to Galatians 4. Um, I was studying this passage over the past couple of weeks and um, as I was thinking about the theme, it reminded me of something that happened to me right as I finished high school. So not long after I graduated high school, a buddy of mine named Michael Manning and I decided we were going to go to Atlanta for the weekend um, and just do cool Atlanta stuff. We had just graduated. It felt good. I need to use this one right here. Am I muted? Is it muted now? It says mute on here. I can just stay right here at the pulpit bike. I won't move. Is that good? Just want to use it? Cool. All right. We'll go from there. there. Hey, there we are. Now we're unmuted. Thanks. Appreciate it. I always feel bad for the guys running sound because it's not their fault. You know, it's usually my fault. Um, but my buddy Michael and I, we had just graduated. And uh, we decided if we go off to college, we're going to have a shindig, just the two of us, we're going to go to Atlanta. My aunt and uncle lived in Atlanta at the time. They were actually out of town, so they said, you can come stay at our place. And so we stayed at their house. And one of the things that Michael and I wanted to do when we went to Atlanta is we wanted to go to a Braves game. So we wanted to go see the Braves play. So just the two of us, we got there. And we didn't have tickets ahead of time. And so we just thought, we're going to go to the gate and we'll buy tickets. When we got there, the tickets were a lot more expensive than we thought they were going to be. And we just thought, come on, we got to be able to do better than this. And so there were these guys that were just kind of standing around that had tickets for sale. And we thought, surely this will be a better deal. So we went up to one of these guys and he started showing us this ticket. Now, now we were young and we were a little bit skeptical, but we also didn't have very much money. And so we thought, all right. We can, we're gonna, and so this guy says, hey, I got two tickets. I'll give them to you. I think it was like $15 a piece or something, which was a lot cheaper than what we were going to get it for. Maybe it was $10 a piece. And so Michael and I, we're not really trusting this, but it sounds pretty good. And so he says, here, you can even look at the ticket. I promise you they're legit. We looked at them. Everything looked good. I mean, everything just looked like it was right. We'd never been to a Braves game like this before. So we said, okay, sure. So we give the guy the money. Feeling pretty good. We walk up to the ticket booth, and you know where this story's going already. Uh, not only were they standing room only tickets in the far edge of the outfield, they were for a specific game that, you guessed it, was not for the day we were there. And so what Michael and I decided that we were going to do is we were going to buy the cheapest tickets they had at the booth because this guy was nowhere to be found. And then we were never going to speak of this ever again. My feeling is the statute of limitations has run out on that, so it's okay for me to share this with you. And the reason why I share this with you is because the people in Galatia were in a similar situation, but theirs was a good bit worse. 
You see, we believe that our friend, our newfound friend, was telling us the truth and that what he was giving us was a good deal and we were going to be set to go into the Braves game. But what he sold us was something that was not only not even going to get us in, it was different than what we thought it was actually in the first place. And that's really what's happening to the people in, in Galatia. They've been sold by the Judaizers this false gospel that ultimately when they get down understanding it, it's not even a gospel at all. As I said, we're going to be in verses 8 through 20, and though we're picking up in verse 8 tonight, we have to understand that this really is a continuation of the argument that Paul began in Galatians 2, going all the way back to 15 and 16, where he says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. One of the things about Galatians is, unlike a lot of Paul's letters that may address several different topics, there is one topic in the book of Galatians, which in some ways can make it be a tough book to preach through because it's almost like, okay, yeah, we got it, now let's move on. But it, Paul's like, you haven't got it, and we need to keep hammering on this because it's a big deal. And in our passage tonight, what we're going to see is that Paul that started this, this uh, argument in 2, 15 through 16, what he shows us is that these, Jew, these Galatians, they had believed in Christ, but they were from a Gentile background. So they weren't Jewish. And so unlike Paul, who came to Christ out of a lifetime of following the law, these people who were now Judaizers were coming in and saying that Paul had either misled them or left out part of what they needed to actually be Christians. And because they were Jewish and they'd followed the law all their lives, their argument seemed pretty plausible. But what Paul is doing is he's saying, hey guys, I'm Jewish too. And I didn't mislead you. I didn't lead something out. And so he spends a lot of time in multiple verses showing why they didn't have to add the law. But in these verses tonight, I think what we want to see is kind of the effects of believing the false gospel because they not only believed it but there were ramifications of it and that's important for us because if we believe a false gospel or even if we believe the gospel wrongly it will have effects and so what we're going to do is we're going to look tonight at this passage for, uh, chapter 4 verses 8 through 20 and we're going to ask ourselves the question am I believing something wrongly about the gospel. Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse 8, if you wouldn't mind standing with me, if you can, as we read God's word, we're going to be in Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that are by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a body ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of this blessing, you fellows? For I testify to you that it's possible you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? 
They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we remember the message from this morning that you have sent Christ to be our Passover lamb. That the sins of the world were laid upon him and now when we believe and trust the hope of the gospel, we are saved. And Father, we never want to be guilty of adding to or taking away from the gospel. We never want to be guilty of believing in vain or believing wrongly. So Lord, I pray that you would take this text in the next few weeks and that you would open our eyes that we might see where we might be believing wrongly. And in seeing, we might turn and trust more fully the hope of Jesus that's laid out before us. We love you and ask this in the name of Christ alone. Amen. So we want to see three different uh, effects of believing the wrong gospel. And the first one is this. A false gospel enslaves through works. A false gospel enslaves through works. We see this in verses 8 through 11 where, where Paul says, Formerly you did not know God. You were enslaved to those things which are by nature not God's. Now, he points out that before they came to know Christ, they were enslaved by things that were not God's. Now, this is common Old Testament language that the prophets would often use in speaking of the idols of the pagans that were around the people. So, for instance, God even spoke in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 11. He, he is chastising Israel, and he says this, Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. And so what he's doing is, is God in the book of Jeremiah is saying, look, these pagan nations stick to their gods and they're not even really gods. But you have left me. Well, Paul is pointing out to the people in Galatia here that before they came to faith in Christ, they were enslaved to things that weren't even gods. They were giving themselves. They were, they were pouring their lives out. They were serving. They were enslaved. They were, they were doing all the things that they could in hopes that these gods would notice them, in hopes that these gods would care for them, or that they would give them good crops, or they would give them children, or they would do whatever the case may be. And they were enslaved to that. But Christ had saved them from this slavery. He says in verse 9, But now that you have come to know God, so if he's saying, hey, you were serving not gods, but now you've come to know God. But then he makes the astounding statement, rather, yet to be known by God. It's not just that now they've gone from serving these things that weren't gods to, to knowing about God. They have come from serving these things that are not even gods, that the one true God of the universe knows them personally, deeply, intimately. And the way that they came into that relationship with God was through the gospel. 
Paul is reminding them that when I preach the good news of the gospel to you, that you are alienated from God, but God sent his son so that you might have a relationship with him and would forgive all of your sins, not through your works, not through your good deeds, but in faith in his death, burial, and resurrection alone, you went from being a slave serving something, not even a God, to be being known by God. And he says, that's what it was like when you were living that way. But do you understand, Galatians, that what you're doing by adding this law is you're putting yourself back in the same situation? It was interesting. One commentator notes this. Though the Galatians as Gentiles had never been under the Mosaic yoke, yet they had been under the elemental elements of the world. The common designation for the Jewish and Gentile systems alike in contrast to the gospel. However superior the Jewish was to the Gentile. Both systems consisted in outward worship and cleaved to sensible forms. Both were in bondage to the elements of sense. As though these could give the justification and sanctification which the inner and spiritual power of God alone could bestow. You see, Paul uses the exact same phrase of the elementary principles of the world in Colossians chapter 2. And when he's speaking to the people of Colossae, he's telling them, you're submitting yourself to these rules and regulations, and they can't bring about the sanctification of your flesh. No law can do that, only the Spirit of God in Christ. And what they were doing is they were submitting themselves again to a slavery that would bring no good outcome. And so this false gospel was doing that. You see, the reason a false gospel enslaves you is that you have to justify yourself through your own effort. And if that's the case, you can never stop working. Because you always have to wonder, have I done enough? You have to be concerned that maybe you haven't done it fully. You have to understand that there's always more to be done. You aren't free to live in obedience and faith. You're enslaved to having to do more and more and what Paul is doing is he is he's trying to shake them from their slumber. Do you understand what you're doing? But it's not only that. A false gospel not only enslaves us to works, a false gospel brings division and not unity. We see this in verses 12 through 16. So Paul notes that there's a change in the Galatians when they become followers of Christ to now that they're following the teachers of the Judaizers. Look look at what he says. Let's read this again because I I think it's important. It says, brothers, so that brothers, okay, he, he is identifying with them. Brothers, we are, he's not saying that they are now lost. He's saying you're believing something wrongly. You need to turn back. He's coming to them as a brother. Brothers, I entreat you. Become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. Paul's saying, I ain't mad at you, but I got a word for you. You know it was because of a body ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. Here's what he's saying. Paul says, hey, The first time I came to preach to you, when you heard the gospel, when you first trusted in Christ, you know that it was because of a body ailment. Now, we don't know what that was. Some commentators think that it may have had something to do with Paul's eyes, because he says later says that you would have gouged your own eyes out for me. 
Some think that um, it was related to the beating he had just had in the city before he came to where they were, where he had been beaten for sharing the gospel and run out of the city. Some think that it could have even been malaria because there were lower regions that had malaria all over the place. And Paul would have had this sickness that even would have resulted in maybe even some blindness or some things. But here's the point. The reason for the illness is not what Paul is going for. What Paul is saying is, I had this illness and I would have been a burden to you. It would have been hard for them. And he says, I wasn't a burden to you. You accepted me as an angel of the Lord, as Jesus himself. That's how they were with Paul. That's how close they were. That's how unified they were. That's how loved he felt by them. But notice now how he says, what then has become of the blessing you felt? For I testify that you, if possible, would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? Notice what he's saying. Paul's saying, why things changed? I've not changed. My message has not changed. The way that I talk about you, think about you, feel about you, that hasn't changed. The only thing that has changed and the reason why you no longer love me and feel this way about me is because you've believed a false gospel. And now, instead of being a, a friend, a brother, as someone you would look at as even a messenger of God, you look at me as an enemy. Now, we have to note that more than likely, Paul didn't really think that they saw him as an enemy. But what he's doing is he's asking this rhetorical question to wake them up. Because you could almost feel the sense of the Galatians saying, no, 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 Paul, you're not our enemy. But Paul is showing them. That by believing this wrong gospel, there is division that is between them. And they are no longer unified. The reason why this brings disunity is because we're not only being self-justified by works with a false gospel, but we're also being self-justified by knowledge. You see, the Galatians had turned from viewing Paul as a spiritual parent to a spiritual inferior. In their mind, he had preached half the gospel to them. He had left something out. They now knew more than Paul did. They now were exalted over Paul. They now could kind of look down on Paul. And Paul, they kind of felt like, Paul, man, you're just, you were good for a little while now. But Paul, we've moved on to the better things. We really understand it now, Paul. And you just need to quit this because we are superior to you because we now know this truth. They are being puffed up, as Paul writes, even in 1 Corinthians 8. He notes that knowledge puffs up, but that love builds up. You see, the kind of knowledge that they felt they had led to pride, a feeling of superiority, and not a feeling of humility. And that kind of pride does not lead to love. So what we found is that this false gospel enslaves us to works. Only the gospel frees us from trying to earn it. A false gospel causes disunity and not unity. But also we see a false gospel removes Jesus from the center. That's really what's going on here. After saying, have I become your enemy? And in verse 17, he makes this interesting statement. He says, they make much of you but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, 
that you may make much of them. Notice what he's saying here. He's saying, hey, guys, they're, they're making much of you. They're, they're bragging on you. They're, 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 they're pulling you. They're, they're talking to you. They must have been pretty decent law followers. Like they must have taken pretty good to, to be and doing things on the Sabbath and eating the right things and stopping eating, you know, pork and stuff like that. Whatever it was, they, all the freedoms they had in Christ and they're now submitting to the law. And so the Judaizers are like, man, you guys are, y'all are doing good. You need to keep on going. You need, you're doing great. Keep on going. And, and they kind of felt good about it. Like, yeah, these guys think we're doing great. We are. We need to keep on going. And Paul said, it feels good, doesn't it? You know what they're trying to do? They're trying to separate you from Christ so that they'll be most important in your life. You see, what they were doing was not encouraging them to pursue after Jesus. They were encouraging them to pursue after their own self-justification. And by doing so, they would make much of these people who had just shown them how to do it. Jesus had been removed from the center. He became an entryway into the gospel, but the law and their keeping of it that became how everything was done right. That was what was good. And when you do that, Jesus isn't the sinner. You are or they are. You see, in the midst of it, they were making much of each other but not Jesus. You know, so what we find is there's not only self-justification through works and knowledge, but even through self-esteem. I feel better about myself, so this must be right. Salvation becomes not about freeing us from the power and slavery of sin, but about the wrong view of ourselves. You know, one of the things I was thinking about as I was, as I was studying this and putting this down is, one, we have to think about just how dangerous a false gospel is. But I think even more so, I think we have to think about just how subtle a false gospel is. What I mean by that is it takes what's good and just tweaks it just a little bit, just a little bit. It, it, it kind of seems right, and it kind of seems like it might be okay, but it's tweaked just enough. Some of y'all that know me know that I uh, enjoy doing woodworking. Um, it's just, I, I, really, I really like it. Um, but here's one of the things, if you, somebody does woodworking, will tell you. So if you go to cut an angle on a piece of wood, and you may say, oh, that angle is off by about half a degree. That's no big deal. Well, if you're making a cut that's really small, half a degree may not be that big of a deal. But if that piece of wood, like on the sound booth that I did up there, that angle is off just a little bit, the first time I cut it, it was off by about half a degree. By the time it got to the end of the sound booth, it was hanging over the edge. That one little half a degree that seemed like it would make no big deal totally set the entire thing off. And the subtlety of a false gospel is it'll get you off by half a degree, but then take you in the completely wrong direction. It'll take what's good and it'll twist it. Here's what I mean by that. You see, we as followers of Jesus, we have commands we should follow. There are things the Bible tells us we should do and shouldn't do. There are things we should repent of. There are things that should characterize our life. We should strive to learn and to know deeply and widely as we can. We should grow deep in our understanding of the gospel. We should go deep in our understanding of the Lord. We should search and plumb the depths of his word. We should never stop growing in that. And we should encourage each other. 
We should be a people that are constantly affirming in everyone around us what we see God doing in their life what we see happening, how we see them growing. And we should have those that have poured into us, we should tell them how God is using them, how they should encourage, how they are encouraging us and what God is doing. But what a false gospel does is it takes those things and it makes them either a means to right standing with God or the end goal in and of themselves. And that's what's wrong. You see, the commands that we follow are the overflow of a heart that has been completely set free by Jesus. So when I do things to follow God, I do them because Jesus has completely obeyed the law in my place. And I now, as an overflow of my heart, I want to serve him. And what the gospel tells me is I'm going to get it wrong, I'm going to get it wrong, I'm going to get it wrong. But every time I get it wrong, Christ has already paid for that. And I'm free to get up and say, hey, I got it wrong, but I'm going to do it again. Because Jesus has paid completely the price. Paid in full. It's done. So now I am free. I am free to strive and mess up and know that my Savior has paid it so I can stand and strive and keep going no matter if I mess up 70,000 times. Christ has paid for it and I'm free to get up and keep trying to obey because I don't have to earn anything. He's already earned it for me. And see, the gospel tells us that I, can, that I can know and know and know and study and learn, but it also tells me there's no way on this earth that if I rightly understand the gospel, I could ever look at any other single person and think I deserve it more than they do, or that I'm better than they am, than they are. That's terrible English. Good theology, terrible English. We are not ever, ever better than someone else. Oh, the grace of God that he would show deep things to us, but that we would ever take that and see that as a means of justification is a distortion of the gospel. And we, as people who have been saved by Jesus, we don't find our value in what other people tell us. And when we encourage people, we want them to see the work of God in their lives. Read Colossians chapter 1. Paul is just praising God for what is going on in the lives of the Colossians. And so he's affirming them. He is encouraging them. One of my favorite things to do this past couple of weeks is I've met with several of our students at BCM. They're going to be coming on to our leadership team. And one of my favorite things to do is to sit down with them and look them square in the eye and say, here's what I want you to know. The reason why that I've asked you to be a part of this is because I've seen God working in your life. But more importantly than that, your peers, your friends who know you, they have personally recommended you. And here are some things they said they've seen God doing in your life. And what I do is I tell them that and then I finish out with, so keep trusting Jesus. Keep pursuing you may feel like nothing's going right. You may feel like you have failed him. The gospel is good. The gospel is true. Keep following Jesus. Because I want to encourage them and affirm them, and I want to keep Jesus at the middle of it all. I want them to know the reason why these things are going well in their life is because Christ has poured out his spirit into their hearts, and he is making them more like Jesus. And I see this in you. But there's a long way to go, so keep fighting. You see, we are to be a people who make much of others so that they would turn their eyes to Jesus, not so they'd turn it on themselves. 
So I've been thinking about about this sermon, and I've been thinking about kind of about us as a church and kind of where where the book of Galatians applies to us. And you know, I, it's important for us to know the gospel. It's important for us to know it. You know, I've been, I've been told before the way people learn to find counterfeit bills. Yesterday, we were at a uh, missions commissioning service, and we had to, we took up an offering, and so Hunter was helping me, Hunter and Moses were helping me count the offering, and Hunter's sitting there, he's looking at this $1 bill, because he thought it was a fake. So we're looking at, how do you, how do you spot a fake? Well, you spot a fake by knowing what the real thing looks like, not studying all the fakes. And so it's important for us to know the gospel. And the thing is, we can, we can stand up and we can talk about, and rightly so, we don't need to believe the prosperity gospel. We don't need to believe that there are things that we should do to earn our salvation. And my guess is that most of us in this room would shake our heads and say yes and amen. And that's good. But my question is, is there, is there more that we need to think about? And, and here's the, one of the ways that I think that this could affect us that would be good for us to consider. We may not fully buy into a false gospel, but there are times that our trust fully in the gospel may waver. Here, here's, here's, here's what I mean kind of like that. So a few weeks ago, I was talking to a young man, um, and we were, we were talking about some things that had gone on in his life. And he had, he had done something in his past that was sinful. And he had recognized it, he had confessed it to the Lord, and he had repented of that sin. So he had seen that it was sin, God had convicted his heart, and he, he repented, he turned from that. He had not done that anymore and had no desire to do that anymore, which I commended in him. But he said, I, I just still feel, I just, I, I just, I, there's got to be more I need to do. I, I just, I still, every time I think about it, I just feel bad. And I just, I, I just feel like I just need to confess it again. I need to confess it again. So, so as I was talking to him, I, I commended him and I said, you know, it is, it's good that you don't like your sin. It, it's good that you don't want to follow sin. But can I tell you, you aren't fully trusting the gospel right now because the gospel says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, he had believed that Christ would in the end forgive him, but he wasn't believing that right now Christ had forgiven him. So there was a sense in which he still needed to pay some kind of penance. He still needed to do certain things. And I just encouraged him and pleaded with him, trust the gospel. If the gospel is true, what you have done has been paid for by Christ on the cross. And he no longer looks at you as if he's waiting on you to do enough to be over that. You see, sometimes we don't fully trust the gospel because we can verbalize that yes, if I confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in my heart that God has raised him from the dead, I've got that. But I don't really get to the part if I confess my sins, he is faithful and just to forgive me of my sins and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. We fall short of fully believing that. And what we'll find is that if we fall short of fully believing that, we are in essence not fully believing the gospel. We need to live in the truth of the gospel. Do we need to feel remorse over our sin? Absolutely. Do we need to repent of our sin? Absolutely. 
And then do we need to live in the fullness of the forgiveness of Christ? Absolutely. We've got to be a people that fully trust the gospel in every way. This is one of the areas that I think we can find ourselves in danger. Thinking we have to pay a certain amount of penance for God to fully forgive us. Thinking we are better than someone else because we have studied more, read more, or experienced more. Incorporating the world's focus on booing our self-esteem and then Christianizing it. The best version of ourselves is not the one who writes our own future and is looking for our best life now. The best version of ourselves is the one that reflects Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, we fall into the same trap of being enslaved to works, bringing division, or removing Jesus from the center. We're wavering in our deep trust of the gospel. We need to come back and view all of life through the hope that it brings. So what I want to encourage you to do is see if you see these things in your life, if you see thoughts of pride, if you see thoughts of division, if you see thoughts of what do I need to do more in order for Christ to receive me, I'm not saying don't confess your sin. I'm not saying don't repent of your sin. Don't don't mishear me. But what I'm saying is when you won't fully believe the gospel, Christ is calling you back. Trust and believe and then live a life that flows out of that truth of the gospel. Because that truth of the gospel that says you have been fully forgiven in Christ is the same truth of the gospel that says I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me and live in that. That brings glory to his name. I want to close by reading the words from a song that we sang this morning. Um, Obviously, this has been on my mind as I was getting ready to preach it. Um, But the words from the song, Not in Me, just jumped out to me this morning. So I want to read them to you. Because I think it's a good way for us to close. No list of sins I have not done. No list of virtues I pursue. No list of those I am not like can earn myself a place with you. O God, be merciful to me. I am a sinner through and through. My only hope of righteousness is not in me, but only you. No humble dress, no fervent prayer, no lifted hands, nor tearful song, no recitation of the truth can justify a single wrong. My righteousness is Jesus' life. My debt was paid by Jesus' death. My weary load was borne by him, and he alone can give me rest. No separation from the world, no work I do, no gift I give can cleanse my conscience, cleanse my hand. I cannot cause my soul to live. But Jesus died and rose again. The power of death is overthrown. My God is merciful to me and merciful in Christ alone. I want to encourage you tonight. If the Lord has has shown you maybe an area where you've realized that in that area you've not fully trusted the truth of the gospel. God is merciful. And he is merciful to you in Christ. 
And in his great and abundant mercy to you, he has shown you ways that are, sho- that are pulling you short in your relationship with him. And he does it not because he no longer loves you, but because he loves you dearly. And he's calling you to turn from that so that you would experience the fullness of his grace. But maybe even tonight, maybe you're sitting here, maybe this morning you heard the message of the gospel. Maybe tonight you've heard the message of the gospel. Maybe for years you have heard that Christ has died for you. That though you are a sinner separated by, from God by your sin with no hope of your own, nothing you can do, nothing you can make up to be righteous, to bring you right between you and God. But God sent his son Christ to die for us, not just die, but to raise from the dead so that we could have hope. Even tonight, if you've never trusted that, I plead with you, no matter how long you've been going to church, no matter how well people in this room may know you, if you have not trusted Christ, would you tonight trust in Christ? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the hope that comes only in your word. And Father, I confess that in my heart, I know that there are times that I trust something other than the gospel. Whether it be my 